This one starts with a confession. I've always believed more in voodoo than in science. Typically, when I say that, I say it's in jest. But behind every joke is the hard bone of truth. Joseph Campbell once said, science tells us about the external world, the one bound in time, whereas myth provides a map to what is inside us, an eternal. And I believe in my gut that this is true. The world we have created today is governed by science and tech, and we are rapidly losing touch with the ancient wisdom. And it is only the latter that can guide us home. Today's film is Everybody, directed by Julie Cohen. And now for my second confession. I don't think I have ever had my preconceptions so completely and categorically overturned in 90 minutes before. This film did that for me. It is a collective portrait of three intersex people and the story of how science gone wrong in its arrogance and provisionality cursed literally millions of people to wander in the wilderness of mangled bodies until their souls led them home. It is provocative, uncomfortable, and fascinating. Without further ado, I give you a conversation with Julie Cohen. How much time have we got with you, Julie? Half an hour? Half an hour. All right. Well, we'll do it perfectly in half an hour then. That is wonderful. I don't think I've been on your podcast before. Well, it's the, you're, you're overdue. Now you're here. How could I have not been? But I know why, because my docs haven't been dangerous enough. But now, <laughs> but now we're in it, baby. You know, now you've earned it. Now, now you're, in. you're in the danger zone. zone. You're in the danger zone. <laughs> I love it. Okay. Um, well, Julie, uh, welcome to the podcast. So glad to have you here. And I have to tell you, I don't think I have ever had my preconceptions so categorically and profoundly demolished, nor have I ever been so totally convinced of anything in 90 minutes as I was after watching your film. All right. That sounds good. Pre convincing and dismembering preconceived notion. Oh, that's why I'm dangerous, because I'm dismembering your preconceived notions. In indeed, indeed. <laughs> um, tell me the genesis of this. How did you how did you come up with this and, and, and where did the where did the movie come from? Sure. Yes. Like it took a it was a windy, a windy path. So before I was um, a documentary filmmaker, quite a long time ago, actually, I was a producer for Dateline NBC um, up until 2007. And um in the time since I went into the indie doc world, I have returned to NBC as a freelancer and a consultant in all kinds of ways because I still have a bunch of friends there. And in 2018, they actually asked me if I would come back for a bit and just spend a couple months uh, going through their archives, co coming up with uh, old stories that NBC had done that might make the seed or a jumping off point for a new uh, feature doc. And the one that I was drawn to right away was actually a story I had seen um, back when I worked at, at, at Dateline, the story, a story that's in the middle um, of the everybody film as it now, uh, now exists, that's kind of like this stranger than fiction case of medical mistreatment of a doctor that um, decides that the way to deal with a young baby boy whose penis was injured in a circumcision would just be to turn him into a girl, have the parents raise him as a girl, and 
you know, surgery hormones, everything to feminize this baby boy um, as if, you know, it's like, what could possibly go wrong? I mean, it's which, seems... is, which is such an astonishing story, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it left me like, it, it like knocked the wind out of me how uh, sort of, because A, when you think about it, particularly that story, it's also such kind of a weird, irrelevant data point for setting policy, because this is not necessarily an like intersex individual. This is no, purely no. an accident, right. right? This was an and accident. Yet, and yet it becomes kind of the defining medical touchstone that everything is 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 bent towards. Yeah, well, the um, sort of surprisingly named uh, Dr. John Money, the sex sexologist who um, sort of supervised this case, was very interested in all kinds of gender issues and in the treatment of intersex children. So when this came, this case came up because the aforementioned boy happened to be an identical twin who had a twin brother, Dr. Money was like, this will be an incredible case study. We'll turn, you know, we've got the boy with the injury. We'll turn him into a girl. We've got his baby brother as a control. And then, and then we'll, then just, we'll falsify just falsify the results and create this horrifying. We'll follow them over years right. as if they grow up. And for, and for years, Dr. Money was reporting like, oh, this experiment is working out great. We've named the baby Brenda. We've put her in a dress. Nobody's told her her past for a while. The family was even moved out of town so that nobody who had known there was a boy would ever know, know about it. And the parents were saying pretty early on, like, this isn't going so well. We put the kid in a dress and the child is tearing off the dress. Uh, the child is trying to pee standing up. The child wants to play with boys' toys. The child is trying to shave like dad, not put on makeup like mom. We don't, and Dr. Money kept saying like, no, just stick with the program. Tell the kid he's a girl. Um, it'll all be fine. And, you know, because of the, I think, honestly, like hubris that some um, innovative doctors can have. And this Dr. Money was actually an intelligent man who had accomplished some things. Like he just really wanted it to work. So he kept well, saying he, it would work. It was working. By that time, he had essentially in some way or another staked his reputation on it, right? It was like, I have a theory. Now I'm going to marshal the evidence to support the theory and suppress the truth of really the, these absolutely horrifying effects in this child and, 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 and young person's life. Yeah. You know, I think that can happen with in sort of the cases of unethical scientific research, like a doctor is so invested in wanting a certain outcome that they'll just try to see that outcome, uh, whatever is actually happening. And um, the truth was that by the time that this young person was an adolescent, they were so miserable and in fact suicidal that their parents ended up telling them the truth. The kid was so relieved, like, because his answer was like, I knew, I knew his soul I was, was screaming out. Yeah, yes. his soul was so screaming he out. He wasn't, he wasn't upset. He was relieved. Thank God that explains what's been going on um, with me. But, be, but because the doctor had been repeatedly publishing the results as being hugely successful, and because all of those case studies had been anonymous, so nobody could check it up against the actual real kids because they were just called, it was actually known as the Joan John case, and that was not the names of the actual names of the children. It kind of spreads out there in the world and becomes used as a justification of, see, if you do surgical corrections and hormonal treatments early enough, it's easy. Uh, Dr. Money's theory was that before age like two or three, 
any baby can just be any old gender. So if a baby is born intersex, having biological and anatomical features that put the the child not squarely in a male or female box, like rather than like living for another moment with this ambiguity, let's just force the child into a box, usually a girl, usually turning the child into a girl because um, sort of from a surgical perspective, that was easier. Um, The the sort of glib phrase sometimes used is it's easier to dig a hole than build a pole. Um, And um, so about 90% of the cases and two out of the three kind of main participants in our, in our film, the, the push was like, make this child uh, this is the track right ra- ra- yeah raise this child as a girl don't get into it don't talk to them about being intersex because that's just going to upset everyone and be you know at, at, like kind of take away clarity from the child's gender and it's it was sort of seen as very important that a child have clarity on their gender you know as part of the whole movement that I think so many people have been troubled by of like, let's not think of these things as in any way, a spectrum or in any way ambiguous, you pick that box, you yes. force it, you know, and it's like, it's like the ballerina outfit, or it's the fire truck. And we right. don't want to hear about anything in between. So you have this astonishing sort of archival story that you begin with from the archives, right? And then how do you go about fashioning it into the film that you create in terms of selecting your interview subjects, which I think, you know, you have these three brilliant stars at the center of this that are just incredibly compelling, complex. And I think what you do so beautifully is, you know, we live in this culture nowadays where it seems like everyone's screaming and nobody's listening. And yet what I found myself in watching the film feeling was this deep humanist, empathetic, um, warm filmmaker at the center of it, kind of lovingly telling these stories in a complex way. So I'm curious, what was your approach in terms of, you know, character selection and then the warmth and empathy that you bring to the storytelling? Well, I really so appreciate that. Um, you know, I've done all kinds of stories in my journalism and filmmaking lifetime, including true crime, which is how I started off. Um, I still enjoy watching those stories, but I determined at a certain point that for the rest of my career, I really want to make films that are very loving. Um, so I really appreciate you using the lovingly phrase and I think the way to do that in this, um, in this case was to find kind of like magnificent people to focus on and, um, you know, the, how'd you go about it? How how did you go about selecting those folks? Yeah. You know, in this day, like things have become much easier with, uh, I don't think filmmakers, admit this enough like google i like google people <laughs> right i go i google people i watch a lot of people on- online i found um alicia relatively early um and all you know for the she, she's gotten a bunch of media attention as an intersex activist in the only few years so she's walking past, so i don't want to talk about her too um too loudly um uh you know she's gotten a fair amount of media attention um as an intersex person, I think mm-hmm. for the reason that she's kind of like really defying expectations. I mean, Alicia's a tall, beautiful blonde woman who looks like everything that we are taught from day one in our society that is what a girl should be and should look like. Um, you know, and then yet 
she's somebody who has XY chromosomes and um, rather than a womb and ovaries was born with internal testes. Um, you know, she's an, she's an intersex person with androgen insensitivity syndrome, one of the more common, but by no means the only, um, intersex condition. And she made the really brave decision to come out as intersex a few years ago and has gotten a bunch of attention. Um, like all three of the people featured in the film, just incredibly thoughtful, eloquent, uh, and energetic. Um, watched a few videos of her. I was like, wow, this person is amazing. I'll give her a call, set up a Zoom. We did. It was actually, I feel like it was right in the beginning of COVID that I um, mm -hmm. first spoke with her. Um, and um, I knew I didn't want to make this the story of one intersex person because part of what the film is the trying- The diversity to... and complexity, right. Yeah, of... and, also, and also like this isn't some one crazy freakish case. This is like, no, this is the thing. It, it's a it's a medical history that actually a lot of people have it just hasn't been talked about so i wanted you to almost feel the numbers as well as feeling the complexity so um so and 230,000 americans you know that 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 that's that's a statistic that's cited at the beginning of the film it suddenly gives you this um and and, and i guess what was so shocking about that is it is such a significant portion of the population, and yet, like, it feels like that fact is not sort of widely known in in the kind of dominant cultural paradigm. And I and I was just captivated by that, and then by the characters. So I didn't mean to interrupt you. Go ahead. Yeah, no, it's quite all right. Um, yeah, I mean, because part of the protocol of growing up intersex in America and in most countries has been for the child either to be told to keep their condition a secret or in many cases not to know about it at all. Um, you know, there has been not so much talk um, about it. So um, Alicia is one of the people that's that's come forward on this. I asked her for some thoughts and recommendations on other people to talk to. She immediately suggested um, Sean Saifa Wall. Um, I spoke to Saifa, who's American but living in England right now, where he's studying for a PhD. Um, he was incredible and had the additional, you know, really challenging part of his past of being intersex, understanding himself to be to be male. That's his gender identity and always has been, but yet with the doctors having made a decision and it is clear on the medical records from his infancy we are going to raise this child as a girl it just says that even though on his initial birth records incredibly there's three little boxes male female and ambiguous just the fact that a 1979 hospital record has those boxes it shows shows you something. Yes, it does. yeah if you if you talk to any obstetrician they absolutely are aware of, of intersex people because that's how some babies are born. And everyone who works in that field is aware of that, even if, and, and hospitals are sort of prepared to deal with it, even if they don't talk too much about it uh, publicly. In Saifa's case, somebody had checked the box ambiguous, then scratched it out and checked female. And on his medical records, it just says that this, you know, we've told the mother that this baby will be raised as a female, will do whatever surgery is necessary to clear up any ambiguity. And, um, you know, and so Saifa, who was not told about the term intersex, 
you know, d- didn't, you know, it was aware of having had a surgery as, as a child, but didn't, you know, was not clearly explained why. In fact, the claim had been that his internal testes were cancerous, which they weren't. Right. Um, as a justification for yeah, to as justify a justification the doing the surgery. So, so it wasn't about like your intersex. It was like, oh, you have a disease that has to be cleared up. So they they go ahead and do that. And, you know, Saifa still is being told he's a girl and is, you know, trying to live as a girl. And eventually in college, actually, he went to Williams College. And at some point he heard about intersex. He started checking on the Internet. He learned what intersex is. He realized, like, wait a second. I have this and some other members of my family do too, um, because it's not uncommon for this medical condition to run in families. And um, he went about the sort of painful process of having to transition, having to transition back to what even physically had been his his state. I mean, he had been, you know, taking female hormones throughout his child, throughout his youth from the time he went to puberty, because that's what the doctors had said to do. Well, you know, it's funny. I was thinking about this as a parent and the the sort of awkwardness of the decision making of the of the medical establishment, right? Like if you're a young and I'm a father of four and I just as a as a as a, you know, as a first time parent or whatever going through, you have the medical establishment basically telling you, hey, life is going to go smoother. This is really what you should do. And the thing that struck me is so kind of, and that's a terrifying thing. I can imagine as an apparent, you know, being told that like, okay, well, this is what I'm being told. This seems like the appropriate course of action because the authorities are telling me. And yet time and again throughout the film, there is this sort of resounding call of, hey, all you have to do is wait and let the child develop who they are naturally going to blossom into and make up their own mind instead of invasively coming in and and doing this corrective surgery. And, you know, why is it as a society that we have this kind of intolerance for, I guess, intolerance in general, but very specifically for ambiguity? I I feel like, you know, the culture wars that are raging right now, much of this is all about the inability to kind of have nuance in a conversation or to have something other than duality in our lives. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. And obviously, the parents of intersex babies are put in a really surprising because most of them aren't familiar with even the potential for this to to, to happen a surprising and upsetting situation which is hard to deal with and i think it's actually beautiful how all three of the people in our film show a lot of sympathy to their parents even while feeling like they were harmed by decisions that their parents made but they understand that it was done lovingly and with their best interests uh at heart um, you know, I think the thing is, it's not like the, the, the parent isn't going to have to, doesn't necessarily have to live with a tremendous amount of ambiguity. Like while some parents might choose, and this is happening just in general now as our notions of, uh, gender kind of expand, while some parents of intersex children might choose to identify their child as non-binary and use they, then pronouns and that sort of thing, that's not actually what's being called for for most intersex activists. Their point is, no, you can still, you know, say that your child is a girl and use she, her pronouns, just don't do invasive 
surgery that's yeah, on the, her the reproductive organs until yeah. until you get a better sense of what the child themselves might might have in mind and in some cases maybe don't do the surgery at all because you know it's it, this is a very broad umbrella term intersect and applies to, it applies to all different kind of cases there are situations as the expert on Phil mentioned there are situations where surgery might be medically necessary but the vast majority of cases people don't don't need these surgeries uh medically and in fact the surgeries can call cause all kinds of problems like interrupting their ability to produce hormones naturally so instead they have to have synthetic hormones there's just a whole a whole array of cascading problems that come with this with these medical treatments not to mention the sort of trauma induced by the the lack of um i guess clarity and candor in in which the kids are raised because there's a lot of this dissimulation and subterfuge and secrecy around it and yet there is something again and again in 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 these characters lives where it's like wait a minute i am born to be who i am and whatever these outside forces are that are kind of coming down on me my my soul or being or psyche whatever you want to call it is yearning for its natural fluorescence right right I mean, I think the secrecy might be the hardest part of all, like getting a message, whether explicitly or implicitly from your parents, that there is something so wrong with you that we can't even talk about it. About like it. that's yep. not something so wrong with your body. That is not a message that that's good for a child to be hearing from a parent. You have to you have to be hearing that you're loved and accepted for who you are. And if there's a way in which you were born different from other kids from your siblings that that doesn't mean there's something like something that's so bad about you that we can't talk about it like that's it, like it kind of seems obvious like to me i'm not a i'm not a child psychologist but like yeah, you know just kids, in human kids terms. Are smart. if you have yeah, kids you course. know they pick up on stuff they uh, things are being whispered about them as poor, poor river is going to the doctor as a 12 year old and the mother and doctor are having this conversation when are you going to when are you going to tell right. him right. when are you going to tell him when are you going to tell him and river like i'm literally right here on the table Speak tell to me, me what yeah <laughs> Well, you know, uh, again, I want to go back to this point because I think to me it's one of the defining things of the film, which I just appreciated so much, which is this is a – in, in some way, uh, you know, a strong activist film or, or an advocacy film in some way or another, but I never felt um, – preached to or talked down to or like yelled at in any way. Instead, I just felt this very um, humanist, deeply empathetic approach. And it's it echoes down in your subjects, right? As you were referring a few minutes earlier, the empathy that they had for their parents and the difficulty of the situation, in spite of the fact that all the sort of horrors are, are, and, and, and traumas are visited upon them, they remained empathetic. And I'm curious how you achieved that tone of really making this very cogent argument and yet doing it in a way that doesn't feel bludgeoning to an audience. Because I just felt moved and convinced. I never felt um, argued with in, in, in a beautiful way. Well, I really appreciate that. I think, you know, a lot of that was just these three uh, these three people themselves and their whole vibe to life. Um, but it was also sort of some intentional decisions to bring a lot of levity into the film, to let their to choose people with great senses of humor and let their senses of humor shine through, to infuse our film with a lot of pop music, 
to show scenes. Great of needle Bill drops. Ma- Great needle <laughs> drops you had in there. <laughs> to show scenes of um, of the people in the film doing things that we imagined would be relatable to uh, to the broader audience. Like our first kind of verite scene is Alicia, you know, on her dating app. Swiping. Doing- doing swipes, something that, um, I, I mean, I'm too old to know about that. Like I met my husband the usual way, like at work, but like, you know, right, and through, right. through actual human I, IRL or whatever, right. but like, you know, that, like that's, a, you know, dealing, dealing with that and, um, just, uh, you know, River and their mom looking through, uh, photo albums, just sort of trying to create sort of profoundly relatable things. human moments um, yeah i'll do something you don't usually do in a in one of these interviews but like credit in terms of like the not feeling like hammering or not feeling too harshly judgmental i'll actually credit my um executives from focus features um from not not in notes to the film but from our first um so I pitched the film to them. They came back pretty quickly saying they wanted to, to do it. But like in our second conversation, one of the focus executives, um, uh, Kiska Higgs actually said, you know, don't uh, make sure there's nuance and some empathy towards the parents and the position that they're placed in here. Like Judgmental. this doesn't feel like right. it should be we, we, uh, an attack on parents who made it like, am I right that you're talking about parents who have done something harmful to their children with very good intentions that are completely understandable? I said, yes, that's true. And she was just like, well, I think we need to make sure that that comes through in this film. Beautiful. So Be- beautiful, really, beautiful note. That was like executed. a pre-note. Yeah. Like the, the movie, had, we hadn't even started filming yet, but like, that was her note. Like, I don't want it to be like, oh my God, these horrible, evil parents. Like, no, these are parents that are thrown into a confusing, upsetting situation and are trying to do their best. Yeah, I think that was it was beautifully rendered in the film. Couple of quick um, process questions before we lose you. How uh, how long did you shoot for? How long did you cut for? And what was your process juggling production and post production? Yes, so I am a huge fan of simultaneous uh, filming and editing. Um, we start editing. I always start editing a film very as soon as possible after I start shooting because it's as you start piecing scenes together that you understand where the film is going and what you're still gonna what you're still gonna want to film. Um, so we st- we filmed this uh th- this movie over uh, 15 months, and we started editing about. Uh, four months after we had started shooting. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then we, and, and, and with the editing starting, uh, honestly, with a, uh, an AE starting to piece together and mm-hmm. me starting to script some stuff. So we started to see what scenes are working and what aren't and what what does that say about what we still, what, what other scenes we want to film. Um, so yeah, so the total, uh, so 15 months of shooting, uh, about, 10-ish months of editing and most of that was um very much overlapping and the two processing go- processes going on at the same time the thing i always tell young doc filmmakers um as my biggest piece of advice is like you should be watching the footage that you're shooting like the next day so it'll it'll, t- it'll tell you what it wants that's how right? you know like it'll don't you don't go on your memory of what you thought happened when you were actually there look at what's on the t- you know l- look at the that, that's the where actual the actual material frame comes in look at right. look at what's there and see what's popping for you because you might be surprised how 
the things that didn't feel that big to you at the time feel really big when you see it. And unfortunately, vice versa. Like you think right. you had a great scene and then you start to cut it together and you're like, well, and it's true, you know, it's a universal of filmmaking. The same is true of narrative filmmaking, where you, you what your your instincts, you know, the circle take on the day may or may not be the performance that's most resonant. And you really do have to let the material tell you what it wants to be. Right. Um, last question for you, which is when you finally screen the film for your participants, what is that experience like? Um, yeah, so there's a couple different parts of this. Um this was an unusual situation for me in that I did show the participants of the film. Um, uh, Cuts in a, progress? A, not really in progress, but I let them see a, a, a fine, a, a very advanced fine cut before we locked. Um, you know, my journalistic background makes me generally not eager to do that. But because this film had elements of people talking about trauma related to their own bodies, I wanted them to watch the completed film in context to make sure there wasn't anything that they wanted to change their mind about and have me leave out of the film. Did anything um, come up in that screening out of curiosity? Um, no, they were really respectful of that. Pro I mean, and, and we didn't do it like all as a group. I just let them each look at, look at a link. Um, we didn't do it. Um, they, you know, no, there, there was some, there was some fact checking that they gave me there was one there was one soundbite of that once someone had said that they felt was kind of misleading that uh, uh that I took out and uh, but it had nothing to do with the trauma stuff that I was concerned mm -hmm. about and other than that it was really just fact checking uh the lower thirds about like you know how we were going to describe their age and their occupation and where they were born and stuff like that so they're, 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 um, you know, but to me, the the real experience of them seeing the film uh, just happened, and it was at the world premiere at uh, Tribeca, where all three of them um, came, and where our audience was. Um, I don't, I don't know from percentages, but a lot of intersex people who had nothing to do with the film showed up. They, they had Amazing. become aware of this film, and, and um, to. I was in the row right behind them and to sit with people in front of me who had been led to believe throughout a lot of their lives that there was something very wrong and shameful about their bodies and then to see the audience reaction of the there's there's one moment in the film where Saifa the spoiler alert but where but where Saifa um has decided that he's going to pose nude for an art exhibit and um I went with him to Berlin to film so that we could film uh, the great uh, German Amazing cinematographer yeah. of him looking at um, himself really portrayed as a work of art, like a sort of Greek God kind of vibe. I think there's even like a little wreath on his uh, laurels on his head. And when the nude shot of Saifa came up on the screen, the audience applauded for his naked body Amazing. and like I, you know so there's a lot of things you expect like you you certainly you create certain things that you think are going to be honestly that you're hoping is going to be a laugh line or applause line whatever that hadn't occurred to me at all i think it was because this was an intersex audience um not you know not not half the audience but there were there were probably like a significant portion there were probably right. 30 or 40 intersex people there and having that having that reaction was just like so beautiful, beautiful. and i think that you know that's like the joy of what you can do as a documentary filmmaker is you're sort of like my husband describes it as like painting a portrait. You're sort of painting a portrait of someone and showing it to them. And if they think that the portrait portrait you painted of them is really lovely, then 
then it feels like a pretty, it felt like a pretty warm experience all around. And it's definitely not a, um, it's definitely not a screening I'm ever going to forget. Well, it was a uh, a beautiful, loving, nuanced, thoughtful portrait, and I'm so glad that you made it. And I uh, wish you the best of luck with the film and the Whirlwind Press Tour. Good Thank luck. you so much. Thank All you. All right. Thank you, Julie. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you to Julie Cohen for making everybody, and thank you for sharing your time with us today. And thank you for rattling the cage of our preconceptions, or mine at least. And thank you to Alicia, Saifa, and River for sharing your stories. See you next time on The Dangerous Art of the Documentary. The Dangerous Art of the Documentary is a Tillerman Films production. Executive producers are Tiller and Fitz. Our producer is Jacob Miller. Music by Zydepunk. The show is executive produced and distributed by Jake Brennan and Brady Sadler for Double Elvis Productions. Thanks for listening, and please, don't forget to subscribe.